Hello and welcome to today's VJ Hemonk podcast. We are a global open access video journal bringing you the latest in hematological oncology. This podcast series will feature selected sessions from the fourth international workshop on acute leukemias, which was held in Nice, France. In this session, you will hear from experts Naval Dava, Paresh Vyas, Alexander Pearl, and Karsten Muller-Tido, who discuss resistance mechanisms to novel targeted agents in acute myeloid leukemia and the role of epigenetics. Hello, my name is Naval Daver. I'm a uh, faculty and we're here at the IWAL meeting uh, and I have a pleasure of having with me uh, great colleagues and friends, uh, Parish Vyas, uh, Alexander Pearl and Dr. Kirsten Miller and we'll be uh, discussing some of the topics that were discussed this morning. So I'm going to turn it over here to our panel. So we had a really exciting session discussing different mechanisms of resistance to various targeted therapies as well as epigenetic modulations that are being seen. And one of the questions that came up that I think uh, is very obvious but actually doesn't come up as much is even though we have these patients with really low allelic burden mutations, whether it's FLT3 or IDH, we see responses in a number of them, 5%, 10%. And so what are potential other mechanisms of response uh, that are occurring and maybe what can we do in the scientific aspect to try to understand these mechanisms a little better. And maybe Parish, I'll start with you and then we'll go down. Sure, so um, thank you very much, Naval. Um, in the IDH1 and 2 mutant AML field, and Sasha and my colleague Carson will speak to FLIT3 mutant uh, and indeed FLIT3 wild type, um, we find that patients who have small clones, maybe 5 or 10%, respond to these inhibitors and achieve a complete remission. And it's always been a puzzle why this happens, and we speculated that there will be uh, non-cell intrinsic effects of the mutant leukemia on other clones. So the FLIT3 mutant or the IDH mutant would impact non-mutant cells. And there may also be uh, impacts on wild-type signaling. So that was the basis of the discussion today. And maybe my colleagues would like to comment. Maybe Sasha. Sure. I, I, I mean, I think in the IDH inhibitor realm, you can imagine some of this could be conferred by 2-HG, which is a metabolic byproduct of the mutated cells. But it works. It's cell permeable, and it can work on the cells that don't carry the mutation. Perhaps that has something to do with it. But we don't know of an analogous situation with FLT3. We know that patients who relapse sometimes are captured early in their relapse and may only have a small number of blasts, so that might explain the low allele burden, and yet that's the growing clone and the one that you're targeting. But why we see the entire leukemic population stay quiescent and not expand under the pressure of a FLT3 uh, inhibitor is not entirely known. Wild-type FLT3 may have something to do with the growth of the leukemia. Uh, but when we've tried to treat patients with relapsed wild-type FLT3, uh, wild uh, FLT3 with these inhibitors, the response rates have been you know, dismally low. So I, I don't think we have a great understanding of that. Um, but presumably there's some either cell ex extrinsic mechanism by which this happens or perhaps cell-to-cell -cell contact that happens from the mutated cells that's modulated in the presence of the inhibitor or even uh, something secreted by the cell, like protein translation that's downregulated by the inhibitor perhaps. Carson, your thoughts? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question in general. But I think here, if you have combination th therapy, it might really be that these uh, drugs work together in a certain way, especially for gilteritinib. I think that it has multiple functions. 
and flat three wild type might also be if of importance and in the way that um, this data out from Maria Kon Konopleva but also from our lab that really gil gilteritinib especially in combination with Fen might really down reg regulate MCL1 and that might be one reason why with Gilven combination you could see a shrinking of clones which are of wild type and I think that is obviously then an on-target effect which is unexpected but I think unexpected in, in the, the way that even the wild type AML cells might respond and I think this gives a lot of Im Im implications for further development. Yeah, I think it's fascinating, right, the whole MCL1 story in the last four or five years. And we initially thought it was very much venetoclax relevant, but now I think, you know, FLT3 inhibitors are bringing a new angle, and now maybe it's not only relevant for FLT3 mutated, it could cascade. And then I think, you know, the obvious elephant in the room, so to say, is the immune system, right? And with serofinib, we're starting to see some glimpses that post-transplant, there was CD8 activation, expansion, very nice data published in Nature, led to a trial using maintenance serofinib, and we still don't know how much of this was from FLT3 versus immune. I think it's going to be really fascinating and important to see what happens with the giltritinib randomized study. Obviously, if we think it's heavily FLT3 mutated, which I still do, then it should be clearly positive. But if it's immune system, we'll have to see. And maybe there is immune modulation giltritinib. So I think really interesting stuff. Maybe turn back to Parish. So you showed some very fascinating data, Parish, with the LMPP population having very early detection of a FLT3 mutation in IDH patients who didn't have it previously. So do you think this is something, I know we're far away, but let's say five, 10 years down the line, if we could do this in real time quickly, is there any clinical application or is there a way we can use this to tailor molecular targeted therapies? Sure, so the data I showed today really speaks to very, very early uh, modulation of the leukemia by therapy. So even after one cycle, I suspect, we showed it after three cycles of uh, venetoclax with ivacidinib or venetoclax, ivacidinib and aza, the whole leukemia is remodulated. But you have to look really in the very early compartments, the stem progenitor compartments, to see this modulation. And all the resistant clones are selected very, very quickly. And then they take time to develop and expand. And so what Novel's asking really is, if after a cycle or two, we were in a routine manner able to look at that very early compartment, could we predict long-term responders versus responders who say after 12 months we're going to relapse? I think there'll need to be some technological developments, but I suspect they will happen, and I don't think they'll be difficult to do. I think the uh, adaptation of these technological developments has to be done in the context of clinical trials, where you have uniform treatment and uniform patient data sets. And then you would be able to develop a companion diagnostic uh, that could be more readily used across clinical labs throughout the world, but I see that coming. Yeah, I think it's very fascinating because you could also postulate and ALL is leading the way, right, that the lower your disease burden, you have a healthy immune system, you can bring in immunotherapies where you have, you know, 99% active T cells versus not. So the question is, would this be the time when you know in three months, six months, something's going to happen, bring in a, whatever it may be, bispecific CD47, where your immune system is on your side. And that could be, you know, 10 years away, but yeah, it's very interesting. So Sasha, you know, the FLT3, as we know, a lot of mechanism resistance, but I think from a very clinical, practical point of view, 
what are your thoughts on the need for testing FLT3 relapse for everybody? And I think we're seeing more and more that we're going to see maybe non-FLT3 resistance. So what do you do at UPenn for testing? Do you do it every single time point? What would you recommend to practicing community doctors? Well, there's a couple different ways you can test. One is by PCR, which gives you a quick answer for the FLT3 ITD presence and the most common FLT3-TKD, which is a DA3-5. So you get that back very rapidly. And we test every patient at relapse because it can change. You can go from not having a FLT3 mutation to having a FLT3 mutation that's detected at relapse. And if you present it initially with FLT3 mutation, it can be lost at relapse. So that's important to know. For example, giltaritinib really is only active at relapse in a patient who has a FLT3 mutation then, not from initial diagnosis. So you need to know at the time you're treating the patient. Um, the, the issue that you bring up is as we've incorporated FLT3 inhibitors to frontline therapy, 7 and 3 and mitostorin, less frequently we're seeing patients who had a FLT3 mutation, particularly FLT3 ITD at initial diagnosis, who when they relapse still have the FLT3 ITD. It happens, but it used to happen in nearly every patient, more than 80% of patients. And now the data would suggest with mitostorin it's probably about 50%. And more limited data for second-generation drugs, but the crinolinib data would say maybe it's only about a quarter of those patients who have a FLT3 mutation at relapse. So that's a big change in the natural history. Um, and there's a similar study uh, looking at serafinib that showed the same. So I think it's very important in a patient who has a relapse, who had a history of a FLT3 mutation, to say, is it still there? And if they didn't, to say, has this shown up? Because now you have a therapeutic target for which we have a drug that in a randomized study has shown improved survival compared to alternatives. So that's an important difference. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. I mean, and without giving too much of what will be shown at ASH, you know, as you, you'll see some data with the Vengird, Aza Vengird combos, and I think very similar to blinaponatinib or others in ALL, you're almost completely eradicating the target clone, yeah. and you're in completely different mechanisms, right? So it's really fascinating. Uh, the, the problem in AML is that those competing clones come much, much more quickly than in ALL, where it may take years or never. And so, you know, I think we need immunotherapies even more. And Karsten, to you, you know, epigenetics, I think, is one of the next major frontiers uh, along with the immune system. So in clinical trials, I mean, I'll say we have had very limited you know, ability to do epigenetic sequencing on a routine basis. So what are some of the things you think you know, we can start doing into trials, or what are you doing on ongoing trials to really look at the epigenome? I mean, it's the most complicated one right now for us. So. Yeah, tricky question. So, on the, I mean, if you have a thera therapy on which you think you'd had, you hit an epigenetic target in this uh, therapy, then you'd look at this. So, for example, we are doing a trial where we do, um, so we have published a, a study a couple of years ago where we know that EZH2 is quite important in the way that if you lose it, you have a therapy resistance towards a lot of things, including FLT3 inhibitors. And what we, what we are doing that we know that with proteasome inhibition you can increase EZH2. And now we're doing a clinical trial which will finish enrollment at the end of the year. And then we'll particularly look whether EZH2 and especially the histone modification pattern can be reestablished and whether this is then related. And I think it's really important to do this on a specific basis. So we know that with ASA, and this cytobine, there's no real correlation. And this is a lot has to do with when you do ASA treat treatment, then you do get a decrease in DNA methylation very soon. And at the time you harvest again the cells, blast, let's say after 15 days, then lots of, of the meth methylation has re-emerged. This is uh, a problem, and I think since no one really knows where to look at so far, I think there's no real established uh, things there. 
What I think is particularly interesting in the future is that ASA also has effect on the immune system in the way that uh, you have a different shape of probably immune surveillance, you have a different um, things of expressed uh, things in, in the cell and of dying cells, what they kind of peptides there are and that might make a difference. But so far I'm not aware of anyone who has really pinpointed the one either specific immune target. Great. So the more we know, the more we need to know, right? We're, le <laughs> we're learning more and more, so that's great. So I think with that I'll thank you all very much, Karsten, Sasha and Parish. And it was a great session and uh, thank you all very much for joining. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at VJ Hemonk and subscribe to VJ Hemonk podcasts on Spotify, Apple and Podbean. Until next time.